Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event originally occurred at the AWP conference in Washington, D.C. on February 5th, 2011. The recording features Brian Broder, Bob Hickok, Dorian Locks, Amy Nazuka Matato, Eric Panky, and Adrian Blevins. Five poets explore how their poems were made. My name is Brian Broder, and I'll be the moderator for this panel. I'd like to thank the five panelists for agreeing to participate. After I briefly introduce our panelists, they will present in alphabetical order by last name. Each poet will have 10 minutes to read one poem and discuss how that poem came into existence. Time permitting, there will be a Q&A at the end. Please remember that a selection of books written by the panelists are on sale in the back. I encourage you to buy one or two or 10 or as many as you want. How a Poem Happens is a blog I, I launched in January of 2009, an online anthology of interviews with over 100 poets. The format for the blog is simple. I choose a single poem, ask the poet to answer 10 to 15 questions about the poem, and post those questions and answers along with the poem itself and a brief bio of the poet. A new interview is posted once or twice a week. Some of the questions typically asked include, when was this poem composed? How did it start? How did this poem arrive at its final form? Did you consciously employ any principles of technique? And was this, was this poem finished or abandoned? For more information about the project, please visit howapoemhappens.blogspot.com. Now I'd like to introduce our panelists. We have Dorian Locks, Bob Hickok, Adrian Blevins, Amy Nizukumatatel, and Eric Pankey. Please help me welcome Adrian Blevins. I'm going to read a poem from Live from the Homesick Jamboree, and then what I think I'm going to do is, um, one of the weird things that happens when you publish a book that you don't expect to happen is people start asking you questions. Um, I really th love how a poem happens. I love the blog. Um, the thing that's difficult about it is all the you're like, how do you how do you deal with the questions, especially when you don't know uh, the answers. So what I thought I would do was just give. Uh, 20 answers and not give you the questions that Brian didn't ask. So this is just a little poem uh, called Hey You. Back when my head like an egg in a nest was Val Keen and dawdling, I sh shed my slick beautiful and put it in a basket and laid it barefaced at the river among the taxing rocks. My beautiful was all hush and glitter. It was too moist to grasp. My beautiful had no tongue with which to lick, no discernible wallowing gnaw. It was really a breed of destruction, like a nick and a knife. It was a notch in the works, or a wound like a bell in a fat iron mess. My beautiful was a drink, too sopping to haul up and swig. Therefore, with the trees watching and the beavers abiding, I tossed my beautiful down at the waterway against the screwball rocks. Even then, there was no hum. My beautiful was never ill-bred enough, no matter what you say. If you want my blue le yes everlasting, try my she instead. Try the why not of my low-down sugar, my windswept and wrecked. 
So these are, these are 20 answers. There used to be a game you could play called 20 questions or 20, but this is just 20 answers of the questions that Brian didn't ask me. No. <laughs> yes. No. No, the poem wrote me. I was trying to prove to my students that adjectives could be anything, even nouns, when the poem said, Adrian, do not use me to make a point. I am not a dagger. I am not a pike or a pick. I am not two lines coming together at an acute angle. I am not a table of contents, it said. For Christ's sake. I was trying to get to class, but my three kids were calling me or texting me or messaging me on Facebook. As you know, my kids are mostly grown up, but they call me 10 or 20 times a day. It's some kind of addiction. Hey, Mom, where do I get my tires changed? Hey, Mom, I have a rash upon me in the nether regions. Do you have 20 bucks? And all this pissed me off and made me anxious, so I got stupid drunk. Winter, bee, plow, bread, celery, extra strength Tylenol. I would rather be cremated. No, I don't like it. It's just too explicit about things getting off kilter when they get too explicit. By narrative, do you mean a form in which speculative or imaginative or metaphorical events happen, which can be said to cause other speculative or imaginative or metaphorical events to happen? Yes. As everyone knows, the head has to be dawdling before it can drag the body down to the river and pray. But if by narrative you mean something along the lines of out of date or old fashioned or defunct or outmoded, no, God shit, it's a lyric poem. A little barn outside of Rumford, Maine, at 8.45 p.m. in the middle of July. Oh, yes, it did happen. It's totally autobiographical, 110%. Oh, I don't know, Brian. Stuck, sticky, fed up, on the verge of claustrophobic, hot. Honestly, it's amazing how little they mean to me. The only ones I am desperate for are the ones I have not yet written. I think so. Give her my best. Fish sticks. Dr. Pepper. Fuck theory. Not Jeff Bridges. Not Megan Fox, not Christian Bale, maybe Betty White, probably Betty White. No, the poem wrote me. You're very welcome, Brian. Thank you. I'm going to read a poem called A Letter, the Genesis Poem. And then, surprise, I'm going to talk about that poem. Hello. You've read your way into a time machine disguised as a poem inside a book called This Clumsy Living, a title taken from a Rilke poem. For you, it's sometime after March of 2007, though the words you're reading, such as that word reading, are being typed on May 23rd, 2006. It's sunny here. 
On my desk, a Bible open to Genesis rests on a short story about a man whose son is heading off to Paris Island for basic training, which sits on a history of zero I printed out from a website, which is on top of the book, The Last Place on Earth, about Amundsen's and Scott's journeys to the South Pole. I'm thinking of writing a series of poems using only words in the first chapter of Genesis. Then God creeps on the fruitful behold. Let us rule the expanse with seed and trees bearing darkness. When I look up from the keyboard, I face a casement window that's full of the Blue Ridge. That's why mountains show up in many of these poems. In sky, 33 times is why three of those, because 28, alto cumulus twice, 23 windows. We're at war as I write, in Iraq, in case we've moved on to Iran by the time you read this. Most of the talk right now is about gas prices and illegal immigrants. Many people here don't want elsewhere people to become here people. And to every bird and evening cattle, let there be yielding. I write with an old version of WordPerfect that allows me to look at little more than a black screen with a blinking white cursor. I've been staring at that blinking cursor for some time, trying to figure out what I want to say about this book, or writing poems, or God, or the Defense Department, or Eve, or my parents, or the simultaneous cravings for order and disorder. I think trust is what I need to address. For me, that you exist, that my words are in your hands, that I've said what I've said, that I've been clear, sometimes muddled clear and sometimes simple clear. That's hard for me to believe, which is why I write so much, which is why this book, were it left to me, would be infinity pages long. Always the sense that every night created him, that who I am is just up ahead, looking back, saying, I have given you image in the midst of waters, and the waters swarmed formless and void. Trust that faith needn't be a weapon, a sharpened Christ or exploding Muhammad, that here or there is all the same who knows, that words can change us. If you sit alone with words long enough, it's easy to believe the mind and the moments of its conception that we might, male and female beasts, give light and let birds fly from our living, that mind doesn't create a thing, but is the created thing. So saying thank you, we are thanks. So kissing a thigh, we are the shiver. Whether I believe that or not, I want to. And the question, what is the definite thing I believe is in the Bible, in every book, Adam, though not the answer. Answers aren't so much fun. The hypotenuse, the superconducting supercollider. But what's behind them, the need to cherish shapes, the smash and grab of physics, God blessed them. Trust in steps and reach in failure. In God creating them in his own image, and God said to them, be fruitful and fill the light with darkness and the darkness with waters, and waters with sky. Everything has life. This book, the mouth, openings into more. 
These poems are me looking forward at you, looking back at me. 23 windows, 13 moons, 32 dreams. One instance of the cloud that is described as small heaps arranged in layers or sheets. A book of poems, small heaps arranged in layers or sheets. The poem of wondering right now who you are. I wrote out some stuff this morning, and I'm just going to kind of rip through this. Uh, that poem was basically me stopping being a coward about books. I never really put much effort into books, and at a certain point, I wanted a poem in that book that spoke uh, about the book. That was all the intention I had when I started writing, which is common for me. I rarely know what I'm going to write about. That's probably why so many of my poems begin situationally, since I'm likely trying to situate my mind in a way that allows an associative plane to begin. Just before starting to work on these comments, I misunderstood something a hotel cashier said and wrote down in the front of this book, my listening was mumbling. That's a thought into which I could lean and from which push away into a poem. Beyond that node of interest, I don't know what I'd do with that, which is the mystery that fundamentally attracts me to writing. I like the feeling that I'm about to create my mind, and it's not a poem I'm after so much as the record of that coming into existence. This matters so much to me because I don't believe I think much at all. I told myself I'd pause after that. <laughs> or feel very deeply or thoroughly without a cause, without some end I'm trying to achieve that demands concentration for a purpose. The phrase, I was sitting and thinking, rarely applies to me. For whatever's going on in my mind or as my mind, minus an activity is too random and floaty to be called much other than noise. Poems for me are that focusing device, that lens, and have a fundamental quality of performance and that I'm able to draw a sense of meaning out of the moment, or I'm not. Revision for me is much more a matter of keeping or letting go entire poems than reworking the mind of any one poem. This poem really took off for me when I struck upon the notion of writing a series of poems from the language of Genesis, a notion that came out of a stuck moment, out of turning my head, seeing a Bible, opening it, and finding that language compelling and relevant to the direction my mind was already moving. In this way, I think a lot of what we're trying to do as poets, and more importantly as people, is to learn to be open to the opportunities the moment presents, to go all Robin Williams on your ass, seize the day. But for me, while writing, what I want to be able to do is seize the second, to exist at the point of time when time itself is coming into existence. This is impossible since consciousness is always retroactive but I still have the desire to live and write without hesitation and from that immediacy find that I have surprised myself out of the known patterns of my mind. In that sense, this poem is very much an Ars Poetica. The passage, always the sense that night created him, that who I am is just up ahead, looking back, saying, 
I have given you image in the midst of waters, and the waters swarmed, formless and void, is a stew of these ideas about being I've touched upon here. I'm struggling right now with how to put this, and that desire to speak or know, to clarify and in a basic sense create the self, is also oddly where I feel the most selfless, and that I now have to serve this sentence more than myself, have to serve the moment as it is taking shape. It's my sentence, but it has a life of its own. It's the same with poems. They take on a life in the moment that is part of me, part of us, but they are so clearly their own objects, words on pages, their own beings, that we end up creating, as we're writing a poem, the very space, the only space into which that poem can be received. I mean this in both the tiniest and largest sense. When we write, we change the material existence of the universe. And while this is the case with any action, when we write, these changes embody our most basic curiosities and tendernesses. What I'm trying to get across is, I think, basically a notion of freedom, a sense of making as the activity that lets us escape from the past by deciding what that past will be to occupy the present as it slips away. This poem, whatever its public value, is a poem that I write just wrote just slightly ahead of my own pulse, which is all I want to get ahead of myself and turn around. Thank you. Facts about the moon. The moon is backing away from us an inch and a half each year. That means if you're like me and were born around 50 years ago, the moon was a full six feet closer to the earth. What's a person supposed to do? I feel the gray cloud of consternation travel across my face. I begin thinking about the moon lit past how if you go back far enough, you can imagine the breathtaking hugeness of the moon. Prehistoric solar eclipses, when the moon covered the sun so completely, there was no corona, only a darkness we had no word for. And future eclipses will look like this, the moon, a small black pupil in the eye of the sun. But these are bald facts. What bothers me most is that someday the moon will spiral right out of orbit and all land-based life will die. The moon keeps the oceans from swallowing the shores, keeps the electromagnetic fields in check at the polar ends of the earth. And please don't tell me what I already know, that it won't happen for a long time. I don't care. I'm afraid of what will happen to the moon. Forget us. We don't deserve the moon. Maybe we once did, but not now, after all we've done. These nights, I harbor a secret pity for the moon, rolling around alone in space without her milky planet, her only love, a mother who's lost a child, 
a bad child, a greedy child, or maybe a grown boy who's murdered and raped. A mother can't help it. She loves that boy anyway. And in spite of herself, she misses him. And if you sit beside her on the padded hospital bench outside the door to his room, you can't not take her hand. Listen to her while she weeps, telling you how sweet he was, how blue his eyes. And you know she's only romanticizing, that she's conveniently forgotten the bruises and booze, the stolen car, the day he ripped the phones from the walls. And you want to slap her back to sanity, remind her of the truth. He was a leech, a fuck-up, a little shit. And you almost do, until she lifts her pale, puffy face, her eyes to craters, and then you can't help it either. You know love when you see it. You can feel its lunar strength, its brutal pull. So I'm just going to answer a few of the questions. Um, the first one is, when was this poem composed? How did it start? The poem began in the summer of 2004 as I had a dinner table conversation with our friends in Eugene, Oregon, poet Maxine Skates and her husband Bill Cadbury and my husband Joseph Millar. We were sitting on a deck overlooking the Willamette River and the full moon was out in all its midsummer glory. One of us asked, probably me since I know next to nothing about how the solar or lunar system works. I think Bill began to tell us, and he was fine up until how it came to how the earth, sun, and moon rotate in tandem. The candle was the sun, the sugar bowl was the moon, the sweet and low ramekin was the earth. For planets, we had to steal more salt and pepper shakers from neighboring tables. No matter how we twisted and turned them, we just couldn't quite figure it out. Hardly anything stumps Bill, and so over the next few weeks it became a game. One of us would look something up and then try to explain it to the others. We were not getting very far. No one could really visualize it. Sometime later, I happened to be watching the Discovery Channel, and there was a special about the moon. It was amazing. Among the many facts I learned that night was the one that stuck with me, the fact that since the expansion of the universe, the moon has been steadily and significantly backing away from the Earth, which meant the moon once appeared much larger in the past and would only appear smaller in the future. I couldn't get over it. I went to bed trying to imagine it and woke up thinking about it. I was obsessed. I even rewatched the movie Joe and the Volcano with Tom Hanks because there's this scene in it where he's left everything behind, his job, his country, his life, and is floating in a makeshift raft on the ocean and wakes to the moon rising over the water. He struggles to stand and face it and is dwarfed by it and says, dear God, whose name I do not know. Thank you for my life. I forgot how big. Thank you for my life. I also read everything I could get my hands on about the moon. That fascination has been long lived as I'm still reading about the universe and I'm just now finishing up Timothy Ferris's coming of age in the Milky Way. 
The second aspect of the poem is that my extended family was going through a midlife crisis, a not uncommon state of affairs for them. So that was also in the back of my mind. I was in the process of working to pull away from them. Maybe I became obsessed with the moon as a way to curb my obsession with the latest family crisis. But the tug of the family is tremendous. Even a crazy family can, see better, can seem better than no family. The poem is two obsessions in collision. And then one of the other questions he asks is, do you believe in inspiration? I was inspired first by the moon, then by the facts, then by the human affairs in relation to the facts, then love versus the facts. The sweat and tears occurred in trying to figure out how the lunar system worked, in trying to imagine how the sky looked to people eons ago, wondering what it was like to be made so small by the moon, how bright it must have been at night, how dark the night sky will be in the future, which was fun, curious, a childlike kind of thinking, not too much sweat and few tears, except for thinking about the suffering of my family and the moon. How did this poem arrive at its final form? Did you consciously employ any principles of technique? That the listing of the facts was in some way interesting was my only concern. The form is open and easy, just a voice speaking in a fairly regular broken line. The leap from the planetary to the personal might have been a technique had I thought of it consciously, but I didn't. It happened naturally, organically, without my being aware of it until I had finished the poem. I really thought the poem was about the moon and these two people I had made up, the woman and her boy, strangers to me, but realized later it was my mother and my sister, or my sister and my niece in disguise. And uh, one of the other um, questions he asks is, did you let anyone see drafts of this poem? before you finished it. I called Bill Cadbury, if you remember, that's the um, man who was helping me try to figure out the lunar system, right after I wrote the poem, as it felt like the culmination of all our failed research. He said, I think you've got a winner there. It felt good. In that sense, the poem was written for Bill, who was a linguistics professor for 30 years at the University of Oregon, and our little group of moon-gazing poets. So clearly, I write for him and them, too. I showed the poem to my husband when he got home from work, and he made some suggestions, then to my writing friends, who made a few more. Mostly, I share work now with my husband and my friend, poet Ellen Bass. Phil Levine always takes a good look at my book before I publish it. My editor at Norton, Carol Hawk Smith, recently died. She edited the book, Facts About the Moon, and was the one to suggest that the poem be the title of the book. My friend Maxine Skates found the painting by Magritte, a tree with a moon in its crown. It takes a village. And then he asks one of the final questions, what is American about this poem? The violence of it. The adolescence out of control of it. The mother alone of it. The fuck up little shit of it. The family in crisis of it. The Philip Levinish forget us of it the guilt and shame, and what we have done of it. In the final hour, love of it. This poem is called Small Murders. When 
Cleopatra received Antony on her cedarwood ship, she made sure he would smell him clear across the sea. Perfumed sails, nets snagging, sagging with rose hips and crocus draped over her bed, her hands and feet rubbed in almond oil, cinnamon, and henna. I knew I had you when you told me you could not live without my scent, bought pink bottles of it, creamy lotions, a tiny vial of perfume. One drop could last all day. They say Napoleon told Josephine not to bathe for two whole weeks so he could savor her raw scent, but hardly any mention is ever made of their love of violets. Her signature fragrance, a special sample of these crushed purple blooms for wrist, cleavage, and earlobe. Some expected to discover a valuable painting inside the locket around Napoleon's neck when he died, but they found a powder of these violet petals from his wife's grave instead. And just yesterday, a new boy leaned in close to whisper that he loved the smell of my perfume, the one you gave me years ago. I could tell he wanted to kiss me. His breath was heavy and slow against my neck. My face lit blue from the movie screen, and I said nothing, only sat up and stared straight ahead. But by evening's end, I let him have it. Twenty-seven kisses on my neck, twenty-seven small murders of you. And the count is correct, I know. Each sweet press, one less number to weigh heavy in the next boy's cupped hands. Your mark on me was washed away with each kiss. The last one was so cold, so filled with mist and tiny daggers, I already smelled blood on my hands. So, I'm not going to embarrass him, but the little kind of backstory on this is that the boy in the movie theater, who's now grown up to be a, a man, obviously, um, neither of us can escape this poem. Um, this was written many, many years ago. Both of us are happily married to other people. Um, and don't feel sorry for him. He's a New York Times fiction darling, so um, he's nothing to, to feel sorry about. Uh, but what I found so interesting about this poem in particular is that this poem is the single most requested poem when I go to high schools um, or when I visit colleges, things like that. When I first got my job at SUNY Fredonia, this is, they have a reception for new faculty members. Um, I was the youngest faculty member on campus that year, and the president makes a whole to-do of trotting you out in front of everybody. Um, for the new poet on campus, he um, actually made a special request. He called me at home and said that his wife was specially requesting this poem to read. Um, this is basically to the community, the campus community. And I was so, I mean, just freaked out by this. Um, because again, this, was, this is one of my most autobiographical poems, but at the same time, this is not how I want to be introduced to um, you know, the, pres the president, administration, you know, that kind of thing as well. Um, but I wanted to say, in terms of the origins of this poem, um, this poem came fairly easy to me, and I, it's not to say at all, especially to the students in this room, that, that this is just like, you know, I can sit at, at a desk for one, one evening and voila, you know. Um, this won a Pushcart Prize, and this, that is not normal. I only mention this because now I actually have a, a three-and-a-half-year-old and a, a seven-month-old at home, 
And I don't write every day. I actually don't have a really kind of writing routine. There is no routine in my life right now. Um, but I find that when I am at least in a continuous practice of writing, I mean, at least in that kind of continuous um, mode of thinking of poems, or even if I make it to the desk and sit at my computer screen, even if nothing but one word or one fragment comes out, maybe twice a week, twice a week, maybe once a week, if I'm being realistic now, um, I feel like, I feel like you're, my pores become more open and alive to the possibilities of language and wordplay and the musical delight on your tongue when you're crafting a poem. For me, that's my absolute favorite part of writing. And so, and I don't get to that mode unless I actually, you know, kind of, you know, sit down and get my butt in the chair, you know, that kind of thing. And even if it's not, again, even, I, I always am amazed at the people who, wake up at the crack of dawn and, and sit down for four hours before work and write. I don't know how they do that. I don't know how it's possible. More power to you if you can do that, but I just can't. I, can, I love sleeping way too much. Um, so I wanted to mention that. And just to say as well, like for, for me in that poem in particular, um, the writing of that poem was kind of a mix of being you know, deliberate and that I, I wanted to kind of get this kind of background story of the romance, you know, the very tumultuous romance of Napoleon and Josephine in there, but also this, this kind of idea of writing a poetry of supposition. And it's interesting, Bob had mentioned that earlier. A lot of my writing, too, is what if this, suppose this happens, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and then from that, the final kind of piece to it all is just that simple delight and surprise that, that you get in the, in, the, in the poems that are successful for me, anyway. You know, I mean, when I was in my 20s, you know, all love in your 20s is moony, swoony love poems. Nobody wants to read those. I don't want to write them. Um, and I didn't, want to, I didn't want to kind of just regurgitate a diary entry by any means. So for me, I think, uh, I think coming from a, a science background and a biology background, that kind of thing, um, and my... In my reading of natural history books, um, I tried making notes here this morning of what are the books that are on my shelf right now, my writing desk. Um, none of them are poetry books, which I found really interesting, actually. Um, I've got an encyclopedia of pirates. I've got um, an autobiography of a sword swallower, um, and then a field guide to shells. So. I don't know, it's not like I'm writing about pirates right now, I'm not writing about shells, I'm not writing about sword swallowers, but that's the kind of stuff that just, again, keeps your pores open and alive to music and to poetry. So, so that's a little bit of the kind of the behind the scenes of, of my poetry practices, and I just wanted to end um, with a poem from my newest collection. This is kind of a response to when I go and travel and um, be a, a guest speaker at different high schools in particular. This is the second most asked question. So the first is, can you read Small Murders? The second one is not about my process, not, nothing else, but um, this is, are all the breakups in your poems real? <laughs> if by real you mean as real as a shark tooth stuck, in your heel, the wetness of a finished lollipop stick, the surprise of a thumbtack in your purse, then yes, every last page is true, every nuance, every bit and bite. Wait, I have made them up, all of them. And when I say I am now married, it means I married all of them, a whole neighborhood of past loves. 
Can you imagine the number of bouquets, how many slices of cake? Even now, my husbands plan a a great, great meal for us. One chops up some parsley, one stirs a bubbling pot on the stove. One changes our baby, and another one sleeps in a fat chair. One flips through the newspaper, another one whistles while he shaves in the shower, and every single one of my husbands wonder what time I am finally coming home. Thank you. Well, I want to say thanks to Brian for getting us all together here. I'll read the poem first and then say what I was just about to say. It's called The Old Brickyard Road Quarry. The world begins with a gaze, impromptu, the first light endlessly divisible, starless, submerged in vapor, unscored, loosed, so that one does not think of proportion abrupt edges, magnetic poles, remnants, or, for instance, the quality of mercy or the maker. To dispense with narrative, to let go of the ledger, the inventory, the 10,000 stains where blood redeemed, is to believe in the dream's irrational counter-history, the limestone scree, the said and to be said, held in solution, the weight a body takes on inch by inch as it's pulled from the quarry's clouded water, a body bloated, radiant, jade-tinged, pearl. Well, when Brian first asked me to, to answer some questions about the poem, and even while I was answering the questions of Uh, that he asked me, I I found myself resistant because in some ways, you know, he has this blog called How a Poetry Happens, and once I start talking about it, it, it's in the the past tense. It's no longer sort of happening. It's, It's like, you know, if you have that Ikea furniture at home, if you take it apart, you really see just how you know, sort of crappy and useless it is. <laughs> you know, the, the, you know, you can't even take it apart with the Allen wrench they gave you to put it together. It's, it's, you know, it's, you know, I don't want to bring up the sort of sausage making, but there, there is a sense in which, as a poet, you see everything that didn't get into the poem. You see everything that did get into the poem. But what you're really trying to do is to convince everybody out there that this is really a nice piece of furniture, you know, that, that these joints are, are tight and, and, and smooth. And so why you want to look behind the curtain, I don't know. Uh, and so I, I was looking back at the answers to his questions, and I found myself very resistant to, to actually interrogating the process because at least for me as a writer, I find myself most interested in the act of making the poem. After the poem is made, it seems, well, much less interesting. One is always sort of working towards the future in their poems. And, and I worry a little bit that, that in taking apart the poem, I'm looking at the poem as this object, and that objecthood becomes 
essentially the afterlife of the poem. And in some ways, I would rather have that afterlife be in the hands of somebody else. In a minute, I'll, I'll come back to that. But uh, I thought I would answer one of the questions that, that Brian asked, because I've thought a lot about it. Uh, and that is the question, do you believe in inspiration? How much of this poem was received and how much was the result of sweat and tears? I said, I do not believe in inspiration. I think that there are times when things do open up before one as if a gift from some unknown source. But those times are usually because one has prepared oneself for writing, reading, thinking, note-taking, conversation, meditation, brooding, daydreaming, fretting, and then one gets the time and space to write. And if one's lucky, things open up before one as if, as if a miracle. For me, that's usually the summer months because like many of you, I spend my time reading other people's poems nine months uh, of the semester uh, of the year and it takes up a lot of time, a lot of fun energy. But it's a very similar to me creative kind of energy to think, what are they doing in their poems? How do their poems make uh, themselves come alive? But I think, you know, reading, uh, as Amy was mentioning, the autobiography of the sword swallower is, is pre-writing. In fact, I've given myself the privilege to call everything I do pre-writing. <laughs> you know, if I'm pumping gas, I'm pre-writing. If I'm mopping the kitchen floor, it's pre-writing. It all adds up. I think uh, Jack Gilbert said, somebody asked him, what do you do between poems? And he said, I prepare for death. And while you're preparing for death, you might as well be doing pre-writing, right? <laughs> uh, don't want, I want to get time for conversation, but what was exciting for me, I've avoided the blog world because I feel like I have too many other things to read. And, seems endlessly endless, the blog world. But on my entry, there's actually a response, a comment. And I thought I would read that to you. Because as I said a minute ago, maybe better to let somebody else think about my poem than me. This is someone D.H. Vibe said. A poet for every reader and for every poet is what I come away with after reading this man's interview. He is far more famous than I shall ever be as a poet. The truth is, however, I do not especially enjoy his poetry. <laughs> Inspiration does exist. Without, poetry, without it, poetry cannot happen. Naturally, it is a starting point, and I am much put off by the notion that a poem could be uh, complete in a first draft to me, poetry must have its roots in event. The poem may or may not be about that event, but it is not fiction. And just so you know, I'm not reading this in any way to, you know, I, I take sincerely what this person says. And I've actually gone back, as you will hear, and I've gone back and looked at a lot of my work and everything he says is true about so many of my poems. Perhaps I can call 
what I call inspiration, he calls observation, such as this poem, The Plum on the Sill, and he quotes another one of my poems, which goes like this. The cold at its poles and blush of blue at its equator do not equal a, plant a planet composed as an example, as object, this inspired shadow, this timorous flourishing, this dimpled orb does not move. Violet and gold, the whole spectrum of a grackle's wing, a static arpeggio, the plum in its plumness sits. The linear and mythic in its presence veer and curve. Put anywhere, it stays put. When I read a poem by Mr. Pankey, I am at a loss. He seems to have a habit of pulling back from his subject in a way that is disengaging. When, for example, he opens this poem, we are lulled into the analogy of a plum not equaling a planet. He is, in point of fact, playing a game that is almost insulting to the reader. And I have to admit, I, I never ever imagined that I was insulting my reader. Again, in the next stanza, we have him stacking up images only to dismiss them as unimportant. They fail to move the poet, even though he is writing about the plum on the sill. And in the third and final stanza, he overshadows the reader with what seems like a dangerous image of a mysterious black bird, only to shrink back into the simple form of the fruit. And I think I'll stop there with what he has to say. He goes on to dislike the poem some more. Uh, uh, but I, I guess what I would say in response, not in defense, is that for me at least, in the making of a poem, it isn't a place where I'm going to pour in some things I've already thought. It's, it's not a vessel to hold something. It really is for me a, a place, a locus, a time in which thinking happens. And like most thinking, it's haphazard and stuttering and ah, what else? Anyway, you try to then in revision, you know, get a lot of that stuff out and make it seem like that nice piece of Ikea furniture, tightly made and useful. Uh, but, but really, the poem is a place for me not to write about what I know, but to write into the unknown, to follow where the language takes me. And um, I quoted Jack Gilbert earlier, I'll, I'll, I'll quote another person with the same initials, Jory Graham who used to say back in the early 80s that the language is smarter than you are. And I like to believe that, and I like to play around with the words and see where they take me. I'll stop there so we can talk. Do we uh, have any questions? Yes. The question was, do you all have the same process, or do the processes differ between people, or maybe even poems, or between poems? I try to switch things up, at least on a sort of 
long-term basis. And so I, I try to, let's say for six or seven months, work only doing handwritten work. Uh, I find myself really susceptible to whatever my medium is. And so if I'm writing on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, I tend to write like 22 line poems. But if it's an eight and a half by 14 inch legal pad, they're like 33 line poems. Uh, if I work on the screen, they're sort of whatever I can see at one moment. Uh, sometimes I work with music, sometimes I don't have music. Anyway, it goes on and on. I'll let somebody else talk. You got, are you guys addicted to TED videos? Does anybody else go? <laughs> I do anything to avoid writing. Um, but, but, but there's this one guy, and I can't, I can't remember what his name was, but he was talking about work, and he was talking about creative work, and he said that when you aren't sleeping well, or you know, you'll, if you sleep and then wake up a lot throughout the night, you'll wake up and say, I didn't sleep at all last night. And you actually did. It was because you're constantly interrupted. And I think we live in a time of constant interruption. And so, so I feel like I'm not doing anything. I'm not getting any work done. I haven't done any, I haven't done any work in like 14 years. Um, and because, it's because of email and Facebook and the phone rings and the kids' texts. And, and it really, so, so the, the whole, I think the whole process, the, being technological, I think is a form of, of sort of psychic trauma. I feel that I'm traumatized by the culture that I'm in. And I feel like it's really hard to write such a beautiful, sustained thing, um, such as Dorian's poem, for instance, because I, the world has not given me the time that I need. And if, you know, if, if I could get anything, it would just be uninterrupted time, um, which I don't get the, you know, very much of. Anyone else? Questions, concerns? Yes. The question is, uh, <laughs> why is there why is there so much resistance to talking about process? Anyway, Dorian, I don't know. You would assume that it was because we all have this secret that we're trying to keep from you about you know how it all works. Um, but I don't think it's that as much as I think it's difficult to talk about process, right? You know, you know when you write a poem, and it and it you know, you start writing, you start writing, and then suddenly something happens. And you're lost in the poem. And you forget that you are a young woman, you know, living somewhere in the northern hemisphere in, you know, right, the universe of the Milky Way and, you know, whatever. I mean, you're gone. You know, you're in another world. And then you finish the last line or whatever, and you look up and you say, shit, you know, I've been in here for an hour, Jesus, what the hell, you know? And, um, and then you try to reconstruct that time. I mean, you know, you look at what you wrote and you say, how did I do that? How 
did that happen? You know, who was I when I was doing this? This is smarter than I am. You know? I, you know, and it, for instance, that moment where I talk about, um, I think I'm writing about the room, moon, but really I'm writing about my sister and my mom. I just don't even know that, you know? I mean, I'm just in another land. And so I think that's one of the very real problems here, you know, is that it's very difficult to talk about something that is, and I'm not saying it's mystical, I'm just saying that's how it is, right? You get lost in this little world, and then it's hard to go back and reconstruct it. And so all of us are just talking about what we can reconstruct from being away on, you know, a trip. <laughs> Tony Hagelin has a poem, I'm not going to remember the title of it, but he's talking about happiness. And one line and one stanza is, uh, don't drop it, don't drop it, don't drop it. And I think thinking about it explicitly, you know, there's a way in which you're afraid that you'll fuck it up. You know, you'll lose it. You'll start, you'll, you know. Somebody once said, you know, I'm writing a lot of poems, or they were, they were writing a lot of poems. I'm like, you're writing a lot of poems because you've got them all. You know, you could give some back to me. Um, you know, there's this fear, there's this fear that if you name it, it will go away. Yes. Um, that, that's really great. Is like it's it, like I, I kind of feel that like it's it's kind of like a dream, you know. <laughs> like you're trying to remember what it was, but then it's gone as soon as you try to. So then I think that I can only speak for myself. I don't know anybody else in the audience, but I think that like when I look to people who like are established, and consistently produce, and I struggle with that. What I want to know is I get that moment. But is there something that any of you or each of you does to get to that moment more consistently? Like, is there some way that you create a rhythm for yourself? Or, like, I know pinning down what that is is hard, but I don't need you to pin it down necessarily. Just, like, you know, point me in the direction. (laughs) (laughs) The the question was about productivity and, uh, and, and how in the world productive people do it. So any, any productive poets up here want to? I think, at least for me, it's very good to have routine and to have time, whatever it is, if it's one day a week, if it's every morning at 4.30 in the morning, whatever it is you do for your schedule, but to have a space that you're not going to allow the world to come into. And I think it is good to have a space to go to. That is, that in that space you don't do anything else but sit and think about writing or write words down or read and think about the words you like and what you've read. But again, like I was saying, I try to think of everything as pre-writing, but whatever I do in that space usually ends up turning into a poem. What I've tried to learn myself, though, because life is complicated, is not to have to have that be, you know, a, a beautiful attic room overlooking the Long Island Sound or something like that, uh, but to, which I actually used to have, which was nice. Of course, it had no window overlooking, it just had a skylight. But now I have, like, a desk I go to at the university library. Sometimes I see Brian hanging out. He's supposed to be working, but he's writing. Uh, Anyway, I'll pass it on to someone else. 
the, I mean, again, I, I feel so just cheesy saying, like, what is my process and everything. I mean, when Brian asked me to be on this panel, I was like, process? There's no process um, in terms of the only consistency I can see in the times that I'm writing, I, what I feel as well and writing often is um, when I'm sitting down, either with a notebook or in front of the computer. And um, Gary Soto, you know, the only advice that, you know, that seems to kind of make sense, there's all kinds of advice on, you know, to give to a young writer, advice to do this, to do that. The only consistency is, he said, just simply two words, sit, stay. <laughs> I mean, honestly, when I've got... I don't know, someone's trying to convince me to go to a movie or to whatever um, restaurant or I've got some party to go to, or now, that's not my life now, um, more like pushing matchbox cars around the living room floor or um, cleaning up applesauce from whatever has spilled. Um, that's fine and dandy, and everybody has their own baggage and their own time constraints and stuff like that, but if you're not carving out just a little, little bit of time, get your butt in the chair. And again, whatever, I don't know, that's, I, I, I'm not even giving advice except for just sit, stay, I guess, that kind of thing. The times that I'm not writing, I am not in one place and I'm not thinking about, you know, the sword swallower or um, shells or anything like that. I've been thinking, I, I probably have thought about this a lot, but about the poets, the other poets, you know, I call them mother-father poets, who we need to read um, in order to not, you know, for many, you know, formally and for content reasons. But when I am reading the right people, I am being given by those people a kind of permission to find a way. I haven't given up on the idea that, that really, that poetry in all forms of literature is, is just sort of spiritually cathartic, and it's something that we need, we desperately need. But it worries me when it's sort of commoditized and commercialized, and and all these kinds of things in any kind of way that we get away from how healing it can be, and how, um, and and so the people I think that are important to me, to, the poets who are important to me to read, are the poets who give me permission to say what the world tells me not to say. <laughs> you know, I don't have permission to do that, and that is a motivating force because. We only have so many years on the planet, and I feel desperate to be, you know, I feel there's this desperate need to say these things before I go. What they said. <laughs> I can remember one bit of advice uh, Marvin Bell gave a bunch of us when we were in graduate school back in the early 80s, and when he said it, it seemed to me blasphemous. I mean, it seemed like God forbid, what are you talking about? But he said, if you're having trouble writing, lower your standards. <laughs> and that works for me now. Yes. Um, like you were saying, you know, sit, stay. I've had so many professors telling me that, you know, good poets, or, or to, to get to be a good poet, you have to sit down every day and write for so long every day, even if you don't want to write and the thought of writing just makes you want to just kill yourself or whatever. But I, I find when I do that, that everything I write is a piece of shit. And if I just pretend that the desk in my living room is not even there and just ignore it and ignore the fact that I even have paper and writing utensils in the house, that's when I'm more productive than when I'm doing this. So what is going wrong here? The, 
the mistake a lot of people make who do this is they try to teach what they do, and it doesn't work for everyone. I am an everyday kind of writer. I'm a basher, and that works for me. A friend of mine, if he was to try to do that, he would be trying to write through my head, someone else's head, and it does not work. He needs a kind of pressure to build up. If it doesn't build up, he has no, there's no motor behind the words. Whereas for me, that, for whatever reason, that's always there. And as I said, I just, I tend to pitch a lot of stuff. The rhythm that's important for me is a daily kind of rhythm. So you, you each have to find your own way. And that, I think, is one of the, the key things to focus on early on, is just these moments when things work for you, and then do more of that. Yeah. So the question was about uh, the relationship between reader and writer, and uh, what the writer does, if anything, uh, when uh, a reader does not like their work. Well, since I brought up a reader who didn't like my work, uh, that's a question Brian asked, uh, which is, you know, who do you imagine as your reader? And I, I say this, and I think people often think it's a smart aleck answer, but it's really true. That is, I say I write poems for people who love all the poets I love. And, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're all aiming at the same sort of thing. And if they don't love the poets I love, then they probably love other poets, and they should be reading other poets. And that's fine. I think one of my biggest fears is a fear of uh, being boring. And I think that's one of my main, and you know, there's a, and I, this, is, this is a southern female thing about my culture that I think I'm inheriting. And I, and I don't think it's so much about me, I think it's in my culture. Um, that, you know, I somehow got the message that I was supposed to be polite and kind and not assertive. Um, you know, assertive women are bitchy and, and, and wrong and, you know, and, you know, that really just pisses me off. And so I think a lot, you know, I, I, I don't want to be boring, um, but I also feel like there's underneath everything, when I first sort of am trying to write as an apology, I'm sorry, I'm going to talk now, and then I have this compulsion to make it interesting um, because I don't want to bore you. I think we have to leave it there, actually. Uh, it's about that time. So thank you, everyone, for coming, and thank you to the poets for participating.